Okay, everyone, before we start, let's do our final check. Okay. We're doing an elective caesarean section and tubal ligation. Yep, sounds good. Has the patient had two grams of kefazolin? Yeah, just uh, just finishing that up now. So, okay to start? Uh, just check the block. Uh, does, that, does that feel cold there? Nope. And what about on this side? Is that cold? Nope. nope. Okay, yeah, looks good. Where you go. So, uh, have you decided on a name yet? Um, well, we've got a few lined up, but we're just not sure until we actually meet him. Isn't that yep. right, love? Yep. What are, and what are the names on the top of your list? Um, so we've got Ben, and um, I my chest feels tight. Oh. I can't breathe. <clears throat> What's wrong? I can't. You haven't been I trouble can't. breathing? Okay. Um, can I get some help here? Thanks. Is everything all right? Um, yeah. I think. It, can someone press the bell? I think I just need someone to come and give me a bit of a hand here. Are you all right, love? Okay. Can someone drop some adrenaline for me? Uh, I need some oxygen over here. Thanks. Yep, some oxygen. Welcome to episode 43 of the Opsangani Crit Care Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome back. So um, I know I promised you guys an episode on anaphylaxis uh, a few weeks ago and it has been a while but um, uh, this week we're going to follow up um, the case report that I discussed with Graham. I've managed to get my colleague Chong who um, has been doing a bit of work on uh, a talk for anaphylaxis um, to join me and we're going to discuss um, some sort of uh, background material relating to anaphylaxis and go through some... uh, um, of the underlying pharmacology for its treatment. Well, uh, welcome back to the podcast, Chong. Thanks. Good to be back, Roger. And um, we've got a few jokes for the next episode, but I'm going to leave them out. So, uh, so what I thought we'd do was uh, this week we'll do an overview of anaphylaxis, and uh, hopefully in the next episode, I'll stop saying next week. In the next episode, we might work through a hypothetical case using um, uh, the ANZAG group's um, treatment uh, recommendations. So. I thought we'd start off with, uh, perhaps because I know there's um, some medical staff, but there's also lots of other people listening who aren't uh, maybe as au fait of, with anaphylaxis as, um, as we are, because we have to do a lot, on that, a lot of this on uh, when we study for our exams. But, but let's go right back to the beginning, because it is quite complicated, isn't it? Yeah. So what, maybe, uh, Chong, do you mind uh, giving us a sort of a simple explanation of what anaphylaxis is? Uh, yeah, off the top of my head. Uh, yes. Go for it. Yeah, there's no, there's nothing in front of me at all. Uh, anaphylaxis is an acute life-threatening multi-system syndrome resulting from the sudden release of medias derived from mast cells and basophils and other immune-mediated phenomena. Usual manifestation involves a combination of organ systems. In the skin, there's urticaria, swelling, angioedema, lungs, wheeze, hypoxia, and a cardiovascular system, hypertension, and shock. Okay, thanks for that very rehearsed uh, um, explanation. <laughs> so I, I guess basically though, what uh, what are the take-home points from this is that it's an immune-related phenomenon and it involves mainly the, those three organ systems that you just described, doesn't it? But it can be a, f- a combination of uh, 
just one or two of them or, or three of them, so it can be um, quite vari variable in its presentation. That's right. That's the tricky part about it uh, is that if it's going to be one organ system, then it has to be a life-threatening one. So uh, technically, anaphylaxis is not just skin. Uh, if it involves the skin, then it's got to involve one other life-threatening system for it to be called anaphylaxis. Yeah, that's right. So, you, so if people get given, say, um, penicillin and get hives, so that's a skin reaction, isn't it? But that's not anaphylaxis. No, but uh, conversely, if you have isolated uh, hypotension without any other manifestations, then uh, that can be anaphylaxis. Yep. And uh, I'm not sure if we're going to talk about it later on, but um, so one of the tests is to look for um, activation or of the mast cells, which are you know these cells in the immune system. Um, which were which are the ones that release all the um, chemical mediators that cause this um, syndrome. Uh, so sometimes, you know, you, someone just becomes profoundly hypotensive and you do a, a test where you look at something called uh, mast cell tryptase and if that's positive, that means that it, uh, the mast cells have released lots of um, cytokines and chemicals causing the hypotension. Um, but, but patients don't necessarily get skin or lung changes, do they? Uh, no, and usually under anaesthesia, if you're... Um circulation is bad enough they probably won't get skin changes if there's not enough perfusion to the skin too yeah that's right okay so before we go any further i did want to put in a little bit of a disclaimer so chong and i are not um anaphylaxis experts there are some members of our college and i know there are immunologists out there who um this is their area of interest and so in our college is the group called anz anaphylaxis and allergy group or anzag and they have testing clinics throughout australasia australia new zealand where they where people have had an anaphylaxis in the perioperative period, usually in theatre, but uh, any time before or after as well, can go and get tested um, and get given professional advice and uh, see a, a really well-educated, informed professional. Um, and we rely on these guys. They do a great job. So, um, uh, And there's the Australasian Society of Clinical Immunology and Allergy, who are sort of um, the national body... Um, or in Australia and New Zealand covering um, or who help look after and write guidelines for people with anaphylaxis. Um, so we just wanted to introduce the topic, but, but really we want to encourage you guys to um, go and do the online courses that they offer, and especially um, if you're an uh, anaesthetist, I think you should um, I highly recommend the online learning course which the um, ANZAG have just released, which is on um, the College Networks site. I did it a couple of weekends ago. It's really good got some great sort of uh, interactive um, hypothetical cases and um, teaches you, uh, uh, taught me a lot of stuff. Um, any comments, John? Uh, I'd strongly encouraging still listening to the rest of this podcast, though. Yep. <coughs> so hopefully we're just going to sort of brush over the topic and, and inspire you, a bit like a TED Talk, to go away and do one of these proper uh, online courses. Um, all right. So, uh, there's, so the Australasian Society of Clinical Immunology and Allergy, they have... Uh, free online courses as well, and they've pitched it at different levels. There's some for health professionals, some for teachers, uh, and some for uh, just the general public, you know, presumably parents of kids with peanut allergy and things like that. Uh, I haven't done their courses, but I bet they're, uh, I imagine they're really good. What are the common causes of anaphylaxis, John? Uh, so first of all, in the community, just in general. Uh, the commonest would be the foods uh, and also in other environmental agents like um, dust mites and insects, yep. cats and dogs. So I don't know, do dust mites cause anaphylaxis? I know bee, bee stings are pretty common, aren't they? Probably uh, not anaphylaxis itself, but yep. yeah. yeah. 
Um, so yeah, so so just uh, I think most of us know this: food and insects are the most common causes. Do we we all work in a hospital? Do we need to know about this stuff? Usually not. Uh, Have you ever been on an aeroplane or been to a, a community sporting event where where everyone who's uh, uh, in the spectator, all the spectators in the stand, know you're a doctor or a nurse? Nah, um, I got mistaken for a delivery rider the other day. So. Okay. Well, I had to go on a school camp with my daughter, and uh, all of a sudden, I just I discovered that every kid who had an EpiPen, if they had a, um, if anyone was going to have an anaphylaxis, it was my job to administer the EpiPen. So, yeah, I think we need to <laughs> we need to be prepared uh, to. Um, we'll talk about this in, uh, later on in the podcast. We all are going to get uh, hit up to treat people in the community. I know of, of two people I've had to look after people with anaphylaxis on the aeroplane so yeah sure and now you know everyday work practice we uh, probably need to be all over um hospital and perioperative anaphylaxis but um unfortunately we're probably going to be asked to deal with stuff in the community if we're around when it happens yeah it's that's pretty likely um what are the most common causes of anaphylaxis in the hospital uh so they would be mostly medications but then there are some uh, not specifically drug uh category um, agents as well so that includes latex and chlorhexidine yep so um, there's not many bees in here are there so I have so once seen a bee th- fly through uh, some doors in the emergency department somewhere yeah. Yeah. so I remember when I worked in the emergency medicine for I did that for a couple of years um, I saw quite a few people who were having anaphylaxis to peanuts and bee stings and things like that but in the hospital itself it's usually like um, the usual things that you'd expect, like antibiotics, um, whether well, something else I've seen, intravenous contrast agent, um, blood products, um, and then there's all the latex and chlorhex, like you mentioned. Um, there's a few others as well, intravenous iron. Uh, I'm trying to think of all the other common ones. Um, what about in theatre? So perioperative anaphylaxis. So that's sort of uh, a, a more specific setting, and this is sort of. Uh, um, setting that we're most likely to come across it as anaesthetist. Yeah, so that includes most of the medications um, that we'd mentioned that would be used in theatre, so that's the antibiotics. Um, but for medications that are generally used almost exclusively in theatre, we've got uh, the neuromuscular blocking agents uh, and uh, I guess some of the dyes are more commonly done in theatre yep. as well. Yep, that's right. And so we're going to talk about uh, so something. The next thing we're going to talk about is a project that was done in the UK called NAP6, which is short for the National Audit Project. So these are really, um, really amazing um, national projects that are funded in the UK, where they look at um, the incidence of rare but life-threatening or serious uh, conditions um, over the period of um, you know, set period of time. And they and the the sixth national audit that they ran looked at um, perioperative. Um, anaphylaxis and they looked at um, 3 million anaesthetics over a a one year period in the UK Um, so that was a you know this is a really uh, really useful um, document because it basically sort of you know um, gives us a lot of information about what is really quite a rare event what were the main findings in the in the UK and then we can uh, maybe we'll summarize that and then at the end we can talk about how Australasia is a little bit different yeah, so their incidence of perioperative anaphylaxis was 1 in 10,000 uh, and antibiotics were their most common trigger, um, followed by muscle relaxants, then chlorhexidine and then patent blue dye. Yep. 
So that's, those are, I think those are the ones we've just mentioned. So chlorhexidine is a new one that people haven't really sort of focused on as much in, uh, in the past. Um, I do remember uh, reading, uh, so, so I encourage everyone to have a quick read of the one page sort of summary of the main points. Uh, but I do remember reading when I had, had a look at it a few, the other day that latex, um, the incidence of latex uh, anaphylaxis in hospitals has really decreased over the last decade or so, which um, apparently is because the manufacturing process with latex has changed. So it must have, somehow that must have changed the, uh, the molecular structure of the latex that we come across now. So that's interesting. Um, what else, what was one of the other, well, what are the other main sort of take home points that you thought were um, of interest when you had a read of the, the summary? Uh, so we'll just go by order. We've got um, more than 96% of anaesthetists uh, acted properly and um, and the patient survived the event. Um, of a lot of interest is the uh, main presentation, which is actually just low blood pressure. That's the commonest presenting feature, and it occurred in all cases during the event. So that's quite interesting. So we were talking about that um, at the start, when we have, um, you don't have to have all the classics, things like um, urticarial rash, uh, and or even necessarily wheeze, so it's a bit tricky for us. So why? Because because a lot of things we do cause low blood pressure, don't they? So if we put someone to sleep and then uh, discover their low, their blood pressure is low, there's there's lots of other things that can cause it. So we might not uh, immediately recognise that anaphylaxis is occurring. You know. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and then uh, following from that, so 15% of patients had a cardiac arrest. Um, while the treatment was prompt, um, the blood pressure was very low and the CPR was often delayed as well. Yep. So they did talk about patients who have, um, you know, blood pressure like, uh, say, a 50 or 60 systolic, perhaps we should actually be doing CPR on them as well. Uh, and sometimes that was um, that was one of the comments they, was, they were recommending. Um, let's have a look. What else? So one of the things I could pick out, uh, so, so they had um, quite a lot of anaphylaxis antibiotics and the, a lot of that was due to this uh, antibiotic called ticoplanin, which um, is not really used in Australasian practice. So that might be one of the reasons why their results are perhaps not quite as uh, representative of what happens here in Australasia. So the, one of the points I've put it forward is that ticoplanin is 17-fold more likely to cause anaphylaxis than other antibiotics. So I think they use that in patients who are allergic to penicillin. And uh, it sounds like um, it might have been causing more trouble than it was solving. Uh, because obviously uh, uh, they're trying to avoid an, a penicillin anaphylaxis and instead causing it with ticoplanin. Yeah, I must admit, I probably only had to use it once or twice uh, in theatre and it was usually something that was prescribed uh, elsewhere. The patient already had been on the ticoplanin, so the chances of a, an anaphylaxis occurring to that uh, on our watch was going to be pretty low. So. All right, so... Um, yeah, so the main difference is, so I'll just summarise that, so in Australasia, I think, um, hopefully no one emails me in and tells me I've got this wrong, but in Australasia, the most common trigger in perioperative anaphylaxis is still muscle relaxants, and then I think that is followed by antibiotics and um, things like chlorhexidine and dyes. Uh, anything else? And, uh, and latex and things like that. Yeah, I thought we'd also uh, maybe mention a couple of the things that... Um were relevant to us in our practice of uh, obstetric anaesthesia. The yep. story's pretty good in uh, their obstetric uh, subset of data. They've um, got an incidence of 1.2 per 100,000 maternities uh, and all survived. And, um, and not only that, the maternal and neonatal outcomes were good in all cases. 
things to watch out for in uh, obstetric anesthesia, uh, similar to what we're talking about with low blood pressure, is um, the recognition was prompt, but the recognition of anaphylaxis uh, was generally slower than non-obstetric cases, which is probably mostly because uh, of the frequent use of uh, neuraxial anesthesia. Um, and then following from that, adrenaline was used uh, much less or um, uh, or its use was delayed, and perhaps that's uh, partly due to the concerns with uh, adrenaline on utero placental perfusion, which is mostly disproven now, um, but also because we've, we've generally got phenylephrine ready to go anyway. Yeah, that's right. So <coughs> often the patients are already on a vasopressor because of the spinal, um, so I guess uh, if their blood pressure... Um, becomes low we just start using that because it's already hooked up and running um, but uh, yeah an important point to make for those of you listening is that um, the treatment of the uh, the shock with adrenaline is much more important than uh, than any theoretical risks of um, vasoconstriction in the placenta all right uh, so we'll not much more to go I think we might save some of the um, important stuff to the next episode but let's just go over some of the basic uh, principles of treatment and uh, the pharmacology of adrenaline uh, and then we'll do uh, in the next episode I think we'll talk more detail about how um, uh, how you should manage a case by perhaps going through a hy- hypothetical case. So what are the basic uh, principles of treatment with an anaphylaxis? Uh, so let's talk in two categories. We've got um, the technical side of things and the non-technical side of things and the non-technical side of things is uh, very important so please uh, know where your anaphylaxis box is and uh, use the ANZAG emergency cards and uh, once you've identified the anaphylaxis uh, grade the severity and we've got grades one to four we've got mild uh, moderate life-threatening and a cardiac, uh, cardiac arrest. Okay that's good. Do you reckon we should maybe just explain mild, moderate, and life-threatening? And so one, two, three, four. So grade one uh, is just um, generalised mucocutaneous signs, erythema, urticaria, and it says plus or minus angioedema. So I think we d- we said at the start of the uh, podcast that, that d- that's not anaphylaxis; it's just an allergic reaction. Um, so I guess there's a bit of conflict there. But having said that, uh, in the treatment, you don't actually give adrenaline for that one. Yep, so moderate uh, would be a multi-organ manifestation including hypotension, tachycardia, bronchospasm, cough or difficult ventilation and any mucocutaneous signs. Okay, so that's right. So you see signs that involve multiple organs but it's not life-threatening. So that's grade two. And then, uh, and this is quite relevant to the treatment, so the dosing of uh, the various um, drugs, especially adrenaline, is to, to sort of know which grade you think your patient's um, uh, having. And then what's grade three, John? Uh, so once again, there's nothing in front of me. This is all off the top of my head. But we've got uh, severe hypotension, bradycardia or tachycardia, and arrhythmias, severe bronchospasm and or airway edema, and the cutaneous signs may be absent or present only after the correction of hypotension. Yeah. So I think the main difference is that it's life-threatening. So if they've got something that's life-threatening, so say for example their blood pressure is 50, or their SATs are 70, uh, or their, um, you know. Uh, have severe airway edema and it looks like it's about to close over. And then what's grade four? Uh, That's the cardiopulmonary arrest. Okay, so that's pretty easy. We don't need to explain that. So what are the basic principles of treatment? Uh, I've written down four things that you you do. I mean, obviously you don't need to use them all, but 
depends on uh, what organs are affected. But um, uh, shall I do that one? So adrenaline, IV fluid, oxygen, and managing the airway if they've got airway edema. Which um, we didn't mention that actually, but in the NAP6, um, airway edema was very rare. And in fact, in perioperative anaphylaxis in general, airway edema is quite rare, isn't it? Um, yeah, I, I'd, I'd imagine that it is. Uh, I haven't actually <laughs> seen that. Movie. Yeah, I do because I did the ANZAG uh, online uh, learning package as well, and uh, that also said the same thing as what um, NAP6 does. So that's a difference to the sort of community-acquired anaphylaxis because things like bee stings and food allergies, um, they often have swelling in their face, so I, if I remember, you know, all the ones I've seen. <coughs> okay. Let's do a bit of a deep dive into adrenaline. So this is the thing that, like, um, if you do uh, simulations or uh, drill down and ask people who um, uh, who are expected to manage an anaphylaxis, um, sometimes people have struggle with uh, the pharmacology of adrenaline. We learn it pretty well because we have to learn vasopressors in quite a lot of detail as part of our training. But if, um, if you're not familiar with vasopressors and uh, the adrenergic drugs, this can be a bit tricky in the, in the heat of battle to try and figure out exactly what the right dosing is and how to give things safely. So um, let's just drill down and talk about the real basic things that you need to know. So what, how does adrenaline work? What are this, what's the pharmacodynamics, uh, Chong? You want to fill the audience in? What, what does uh, adrenaline do? You know, what um, re um, receptors does it use and the organs does it affect? Help. So adrenaline is uh, really perfect for the treatment of anaphylaxis. Um, it's got pharmacodynamic effects uh, for the cardiovascular system and the respiratory system, but not only that, it's, uh, it actually helps with the mediators as well. So uh, it reduces mucosal edema and reduces the mediator release from the uh, mast cells and basophils. Um, so that's why it probably works a lot better than some of the other uh, vasopressors that we might use. So for the uh, cardiovascular effects, we've got um, agonists of uh, the alpha receptors, and uh, that's vasoconstriction, so uh, it sorts that out. And uh, it's a beta-1 agonist, which increases the heart rate and contractility, and uh, a beta-2 agonist, which helps uh, bronchodilate for any bronchospasm uh, effects. And so the main life-threatening things are profound sort of vasodilation uh, causing sort of, you know, severe hypotension. So alpha, alpha agonist um, vasoconstriction helps bring the blood pressure back up. And then the other one is um, the bronchospasm causing wheeze and hypoxia, you know, beta-2 agonism, which is the same, basically the same uh, mechanism by which salbutamol works, causing uh, bronchodilation, helping, you know, relieve the wheeze. Um... Right, so, um, but it also, uh, you know, stimulates the heart rate, and um, what can happen, so, you know, there's two ways you can give it, you can give it intravenously or IM, what happens if you have a, an overdose of adrenaline, say you gave me um, some intravenous adrenaline while I'm sitting here, uh, what would happen to me, uh, if, you know, someone who's um, not undergoing, I don't have any pathological process, so I'm just normal? Uh, I think you probably make some pretty loud noises. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> out of the normal? Uh, quite possibly. I, I haven't actually seen it myself. I think uh, you, you probably have, but um, not 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 in your hands, obviously. Um, but yeah, so there are, there are two uh, main things. Uh, one is that the manifestation of hypertension in itself. So you, you may be uh, you may cause a, a hemorrhage, a stroke. 
uh, and then the strain on the heart caused by the hypertension and the, um, the increase in heart rate contractility may cause some uh, myocardial ischemia too. Yep. I have only seen one person get intravenous adrenaline when they didn't need it. And uh, yeah, she did clutch her. This is when uh, someone else did it and gave it uh, in the emergency department where I was in. And she did clutch her head and sort of wail for about five minutes and her blood pressure was well over 250, so that's pretty scary. Um, and I have heard a ED consultant talking about uh, a couple of patients that he's aware of that actually went into BF when they were given um, intravenous adrenaline when they weren't hypotensive. So, uh, so the pharmacology of adrenaline is quite different when it's given intravenously compared to intramuscularly. So intramuscular... Uh, absorption is nice and slow and so it smooths things out and makes it a lot safer than uh, giving a bolus of something like adrenaline uh, intravenously. So I guess the take-home point here is that um, uh, adrenaline is a life-saving drug in anaphylaxis um, but then you've got to still be aware of the risks and benefits don't you? So in someone who doesn't have bronchospasm or hypotension uh, or, air, you know, or airway compromise from, from airway edema then the risks are, there are some risks involved in giving them adrenaline. Um, and the risks of adrenaline are much less if you give it intramuscularly than if you give it intravenously. So you should probably should never give intravenous adrenaline unless you're really familiar with the pharmacology. Yeah. What are your um, thoughts, John? Uh, no, I, I agree with that entirely. Yeah. Um, so let's just talk, well, let's finish off by talking about the dose, uh, the standard doses. And um, these are all on the cards which we encourage everyone to use if you're in a perioperative anaphylaxis, use the cards. Um, so if you're out in the community uh, or in the emergency department and um, you want to give someone some intramuscular adrenaline, what's the standard sort of dose for a normal adult? I know paediatric dosing is different, you just need to look that up, but um, a standard 70 kilo person. So we've got here 0.3 to 0.5 milligrams intramuscular injection. And do you know how much is in a standard adult EpiPen? I'd have to look this up myself because I wasn't familiar with EpiPens. I, uh, I was reflecting on a, an allergic reaction from a few weeks ago and I thought I'd better know, I'd better learn this stuff. Yeah, I think you told me, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, so an adult EpiPen has 0.3 of a milligram or 300 micrograms for uh, those of you who like micrograms rather than milligrams. Uh, okay, that's good. And on the, so if you are familiar with uh, intravenous Dosing of vasopressors and adrenaline. What are the what's the ANZAG recommendations for the intravenous bolus dosing? So if you've got a moderate reaction, uh, boluses of 20 micrograms will be sufficient. And if it's a life-threatening reaction, then uh, having 100 to 200 microgram boluses would be useful. Now their dilutions are uh, one milligram in 10 mils. That's one in 10,000. That's 100 micrograms per mil. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's good. And what about a cardiac arrest? Well, PEA cardiac arrest, so, the, so you can't feel the pulse. So that's the full milligram? Yep. So there's a big difference there. So 20 micrograms all the way up to 1,000 micrograms. So, so if you're having a reaction but it's not life-threatening, you, you really only give a tiny dose of adrenaline compared to if you have a full cardiac arrest uh, where you get 1,000 micrograms rather than 20 mics. So that's a big difference. And then there is some uh, recommendations for an infusion on the card as well, which um, is sort of standard ICU uh, catecholamine uh, preparation of three milligrams in a 50 mil syringe. That's, I don't know if that's changed uh, uh, since I used to work in ICU. That was a standard sort of strength. We used to use three of adrenaline in 50 mils and four of noradrenaline. And then you can run that through a really 
well-functioning large peripheral line. Okay. Any final comments, John? Um, no, no, I can think of. Uh, wait till yep. the next one. Oh yeah, my sorry. One thing I'm just having a look on my notes. So uh, I, after I thought about this and I th prepared for this talk, I suddenly realised that I've actually never given an EpiPen, even though I've given um, lots and lots of drugs in theatre. So I uh, I had a look on YouTube and there's heaps of um, useful um, training videos on YouTube. So go and have a look. I think I've put one, a link to one of them to um, the blog to this podcast. Basically, um, you take the blue cap off and you jam the orange uh, end into the patient's um, lateral thigh and you can do it, uh, do it through their clothing. Um, but the common mistakes are not knowing which way around is which so and uh, also putting your thumb over the orange end and then slamming the syringe onto the patient and discovering you've just injected a drilling into your thumb. So it is worth actually, even if you're a health professional and you think you know all this stuff, have a watch of the video and actually learn how to do it. Um, because, like we were saying earlier, you never know uh, when you're uh, at the supermarket watching a sporting event or on an aeroplane when you might have to actually give someone give someone their EpiPen. Okay, we might leave it there. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you like the show, please go to the Apple Podcast menu and rate us and give us a review. Um, and also feel free to go to the website, uh, www.obsandgynecritcare.org, where there will be links to relevant articles and show notes. Thanks for listening.